Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently written his first book, which is titled, What to Do with Worry, Why Playing God Never Works. You can find Olin's book on ChristianFocus.com and Amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. Open up to Genesis chapter 1. There you go. Somebody knew it. All right. Um, it's a good place to start for multiple reasons. Uh, one, it's easy for everybody to find. Genesis 1. All right. First page right after the table of contents. Um, now, I'm going to read. I'm going to uh, skip around a little bit. I'm not going to necessarily read every verse. But I want to read some verses from the very beginning of time uh, that are going to kind of set for us what does it mean to be a biblical man. Alright, so let's start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So, People, humankind, men and women, are supposed to reflect something to the world about what God is like. That's what it means, at least part of what it means to be made in the image of God. That you ought to be able to look at a human being and learn something about what God is like. And men and women both reflect the image, the goodness, the glory of God, but they do it in a little bit different ways. There's nuance to the way a man reflects the image of God and the way that a woman reflects the image of God. And so we're going to be talking today just about how a man reflects the image of God in a unique way that a woman doesn't do so much. And let me just say this qualifier before we start. Nothing that I am trying to say today is to say men are better than women all the time. There was a pastor in Philadelphia, a guy named Jim Boyce years ago, and he used to say men are absolutely superior to women at being a man. And a woman is absolutely superior to a man at being a woman. So this is not about trying to find out which sex is better, okay? But there are things that men are better at, should be better at, and that women are better at, but we're going to focus on the men today. Does that make sense? And let me also say this. A lot of what we're going to say is about um, emphasis and not exclusion. And here's what I mean. Just because I say a man is stronger doesn't mean that a woman doesn't have any strength. But there's something that's supposed to be stronger about a man. Does that make sense? Okay? So, uh, skip down to chapter 2, verse 15. Chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Then... The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now just notice, when God gave this one command, you can eat from any tree that you want to in the whole world, Adam. It's all yours in the garden. But not this one tree. This one tree is off limits. Woman had not even been created yet. She wasn't there to hear it. And there's no record that God ever repeated the command. So the implication, the strong implication is, Adam was supposed to learn it and remember it and teach it to the woman. Okay? Which well, she did, but maybe not so well. Skip down to verse 24. 
Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Okay, skip into chapter 3, down to verse 4. Here comes Satan disguised as a serpent. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, Satan had been mainly talking to Eve, the woman. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to be to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then skip down to verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now, if we were just trying to say, what does it mean to be a man? Right? Scientifically, biologically, it's you have an X and Y chromosome in your DNA. That's just clear, it's obvious, there's no argument or debate, even if people try to pretend like there is. Okay? If we were trying to say philosophically, what does it mean to be a man? There, there's a uh, philosophy professor at the University of Texas, and he's very wisely said, what does it mean to be a man philosophically? It means to be a potential father. Doesn't mean you ever will be a father, but it means you could be a father. You have the potential to be a father, you don't have the potential to be a mother. But the question we're trying to ask today is, what does it mean to be a man spiritually? And I think it all comes out of this text. And then it's reinforced by other stuff throughout the rest of the Bible that we're going to look at as well. So let me just give kind of my personal definition. What does it mean to be a man? But it's all based off of this text and the rest of the Bible. A man is given more strength to bear the responsibility to provide, to protect, and to pursue. And we're going to unpack that and talk about what that means as we go. A man is given more strength to bear the responsibility to provide, to protect, and to pursue. Does that make sense? And again, are you saying a woman should never provide? No, but I'm just saying there's more of a burden on the back of a man to provide and so on. Now, men are given more of this responsibility to bear, especially, especially when there's a risk, when there's a conflict, when there's a danger. And we're going to see this. God gave the command to Adam before Eve was ever born, before Satan has ever come on the pages of Scripture. But guys, here's what was going on. God knew that Satan was about to invade the garden. God wasn't caught off guard. God knew that Satan was going to try to invade the garden. And so what was he doing when he was giving this command to Adam? He wasn't just kind of talking randomly. Like, oh, let me just uh, kind of tell you some random house rules that don't even matter. No, he's saying, Adam, I'm trying to prepare you for the fight, buddy. I'm trying to give you the sword of the word so that you can fight when the invasion comes. And just kind of a side note, but guys, in some sense, if you're a growing Christian and every morning you wake up, you're trying to read your Bible, which is a great thing to do, part of the way you ought to view that is I'm getting ready for battle. There's going to be temptation, there's going to be sin, there's going to be pressure, there's going to be hardship, and I'm not just going through the motions to check a box. I'm reading this word to get armed for conflict today. And that's what Adam should have been doing, but he didn't. And again, Satan was smart. He didn't come directly at Adam. He's very subtle. He came at Adam through the woman. Eve took the fruit first. Eve bit the fruit first. Adam followed her like a little boy following his mommy not being a man. But here's the point. Did you notice what I read, the last verse I read, Genesis 3, 9? When God came and looked for Adam and Eve, He didn't say, hey Eve, what'd you do? He said, Adam, where did you go? Now they both sinned, 
And in some sense, Eve sinned more obviously and outwardly first. Why did God, in a sense, come knocking and call for Adam? Because Adam was in charge. Adam bore the heavy weight of responsibility and he blew it. Does that make sense? Now, I want us to unpack what I said, this kind of definition. What does it mean that a man is supposed to provide, he's supposed to protect, he's supposed to pursue? And let me just say one more kind of qualifier before we dive in. Because when we talk about men having this strength to bear the heavy weight of responsibility, there's a ditch on both sides of the road. There's the ditch, maybe over here on the left, to overuse that strength and to become abusive, to become like a tyrant. And listen, that's bad, that's evil, that's wicked. But there's another ditch on the other side of the road where we underuse that strength and we become passive and we don't abuse anybody, we just abdicate our responsibility. And that's equally bad and evil. And I'll probably say some things about both ditch, but I'm probably going to talk about the passive ditch more. And there's at least two reasons for that. One, when a guy's in the ditch of abuse, most everybody knows that's bad and it's evil. Even the guy doing it, right? There's probably some guys in this room, unfortunately, that at some point in your life, you've hit a woman. You've beat a girlfriend or something. But you don't talk about it. You don't brag about it because you know that was like your worst moment ever. You're ashamed of it. And you should be. You should repent and ask Jesus to forgive you and change you. Right? You don't brag about it because you know that's wicked. But there's a lot of other guys that are just passive. And we're not as clear that that's a wicked ditch to be in. We make lots of jokes about that, right? I'd love to grow up and marry a woman who's a PhD and a doctor. And I'll just stay home and uh, drink beer and fold laundry and watch soap operas all day. That'd be awesome. And we're kind of half serious. You know what? And if, if that's the way you think, I love you, you're a moron. Get out of that ditch, man. And so I'm going to come harder at that ditch today because that ditch is more deceptive. And I, listen, this generation, my generation was probably more prone to the overwork generation. And that's sin, that's bad. Don't be a workaholic for Jesus. But the ditch over here of just being a passive loser that plays video games all day, that's a bad ditch, man. Get out of it. And I'm not against video games. There's a time and a place. But it ain't four hours a day. All right. That was all by way of introduction. Point one. Okay. What, what does it mean to provide? Okay, what does it mean to provide? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, I mean, excuse me, verse 15, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. Some translations will say to cultivate the garden. But it literally it just means to work. Men are made strong to work. Men are made strong to go out there and do something and make a difference in the world. Now listen, work was in the world before sin came in the world. Sometimes we think, well, I have to go to work, you know, because of sin. No, no, no. You would have had to go to work if sin had never come in the world. We'll be working in heaven, guys, for those of us that are Christians. Work's a good thing. It's good for a man's soul to work. Now, sin makes work harder, less fun, less productive, thorns and thistles, more frustrating, but it's still productive and you're still supposed to do it. Now, uh, let me just use this illustration. Some of y'all heard this before, but I got one daughter. She's 15 now. Okay, She's not dating yet. Praise the Lord. I'm trying to put that off as long as I can. But I know it's coming. And almost certainly, there will be a day where some little boy, you know, hopefully more of a man, comes and wants to talk to me and say, I want to marry your daughter. And I'm going to have at least three questions for him. By then, I may have a lot more. But really, in some sense, principally, I'm really just going to have three questions. 
Do you love Jesus? That's number one. You gotta love Jesus if you want to marry my daughter. Number two, do you love my daughter? I gotta make sure you really love her. And then number three, do you like to work? You don't have to love work, but you better like it. And let me tell you why you better like it. Number one, I don't want y'all living in my basement. See, part of my job as a good daddy is I provide for my daughter. I take care of her. A roof over her head, clothes on her back, pay for her education. I'm taking care of her. I work for that. I'm happy to do it. I like doing it. And if you want to marry my daughter, that means you're taking over the bill, buddy, and it ain't going to be cheap. Right? It's a total side note. You want to get married one day? Good. You, you, you should. For the vast majority of you, you should grow up and get married one day. But listen... I love women. They're not easy and they ain't cheap. Okay? So get a job, man. And start saving. But here's the second thing. Here's the second thing. And this is really important. Why does the guy have to like work if he wants to marry my daughter? Because if one day they start having kids, and if my daughter decides that she wants to just be a stay-at-home mom, I want her to have the freedom to do that. Now, this is really important, so please hear the way that I'm saying this. trying to be really careful and nuanced here. I am not saying that godly women have to all stay at home and be barefoot and pregnant. The Bible doesn't say that. You you might marry a woman who's a doctor, who's smarter than you, who works longer hours and makes more money than you, and that's not necessarily sinful. Okay, There are some great, godly, smart women. And if they want to have a job, and they want that can be great if you and her agree with that and you all feel right before the Lord. But I have seen it happen before. There's some very career-minded women, very gifted, you know, got their master's degree in the whole nine yards, and they're taking over the world. When they have that first little baby and they see it, they're like, I'm done. I want to stay home with this baby. And that's a glorious thing. And a man says, okay, and if i got to work three jobs, 80 hours a week, part-time at Walmart, part-time at Starbucks, part-time at FedEx, I will make it work. For my wife to stay home and take care of the baby if that's what she wants to do. Does that make sense? Listen, this is not about confining women to the home. This is about freeing them to do that if they want to. That's the ideal. I realize that we live in a fallen, broken world and it doesn't always work out that way. This, right? this whole world, ever since Adam and Eve sinned, is a war zone. We don't live in the ideal world. But it's helpful for us to know what the ideal is supposed to look like so we can be aiming for it even in the midst of this fallen, broken world. Does that make sense? Okay. Be a man. Get a job. Now, some of y'all say, at least when you graduate, you don't have to have a job right now. Okay. Be a student if you can work it out. But once you're done, don't be the guy that's perpetually getting multiple degrees just because you're scared to grow up and get a job. I'm not against a bunch of multiple degrees. I got them. Okay. But... Don't do that as a way to procrastinate growing up. Provide. Don't graduate and move back in with mom and dad. Is that ever an okay thing to do? Yes, I think in rare exceptions. But in general, why do I say it's a bad idea? But for you to graduate and move back in and mommy's doing all the cooking and mommy's doing all the cleaning and you can spend all your free time playing disc golf and playing PlayStation... It will wither your soul, men. I'd rather you live in a small, crappy, dirty, nasty, dangerous apartment that you're paying all your own bills. You say, well, I'm trying to save for a down payment. I'd rather you have a thin wallet and a thick soul than a fat wallet 
and a little thin, withered soul. Now, in the long run, I hope you get a fat wallet and a fat soul for Jesus, right? But if you got to choose, man, go after the character. This says hard work. It's worth it. I'm a provider. Now, some of y'all may say, uh, this sounds very Old Testament to me. Wasn't the Old Testament like mean and harsh and the New Testament is loving and sweet and you don't sound very New Testament. Well, flip over to the New Testament. Keep your finger in Genesis because we may come back. But flip over to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 for just a second. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'll give you just a second to get there. And while you're turning, just remember, this is a letter that Paul, the apostle, who wrote the great love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, that gets read at weddings. Love is kind, love is gentle, all that. Okay, Paul wrote that. So Paul's very, very loving. But I want you to look at something else Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, skip down to verse 6. Now we command you. Notice, he didn't say this is a suggestion. This is Paul, apostle, writing the Bible, filled with the Holy Spirit. So God says, I command you, brothers, speaking to the men, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, so you want to be a good Christian? Here's how you do it. That you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. Whoa! Right, we know if you, man, you got a Christian guy that's like struggling with like massive sexual sin, probably stay away from him. He could be dangerous. Paul says, if you see a dude that's just lazy, that claims to be a Christian, stay away from him. You don't want to interact with that guy. Who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. He said, that's not what you learned from me. Look at verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. You see what he's saying? He said, listen, when I was a full-time missionary there preaching to y'all, I had every right to ask y'all to feed me because I was preaching my tail off trying to establish y'all as a church. But I didn't want to be that kind of guy, even though I had a right to be that kind of guy. So in my free time, after I got done preaching... I went out and I got a job to make money to pay for my own bread. And part of what I was trying to do was to set an example for all you men. The Apostle Paul, that's what he did with his free time. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. Underline this verse, guys. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Memorize that second Part of that verse. It's short, it's easy. And again, guys, listen. Are there exceptions? Can there be somebody that's sick or injured or something like that and so they can't get a job? Yes, there's exceptions. But don't make the exceptions the norm. The norm is a man grows up, he gets a job, he pays the bills, he provides for himself, for others, for his family. Verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Except for some rare exception where you're not able to work, don't be dependent on others to pay your bills. Mommy and daddy or the government, grow up, get a job, contribute to society. You say, well, I don't believe in the, I don't like the Thessalonian letters anymore. Flip over to Ephesians, just a couple of books back to the left. And somebody may say, well, you know, 
this is all good for a guy that wants to get married. I got the gift of singleness. I'm not going to get married. Well, praise the Lord. Good luck with that. Okay, um, that's going to be a hard road for other reasons, but maybe. But even if you say, I don't think I'm ever going to have a wife. I'm not going to have a kid. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter four, verse twenty-eight. Ephesians chapter four, verse twenty-eight. Let the thief no longer steal. But rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Guys, a godly man says, I'm going to work to make money, to take care of myself, but then not just myself, just to serve others. Be able to give. Because there are people out there that are sick and needy. There are people out there that are injured. There are people that can't work for themselves. So if God's given you a healthy body to work, go work, not just to provide for yourself, but so you can also provide for others, right? That's what a godly man is like. He takes care of people. His family first, and then secondarily, other people he may come across. Be a provider, man. Second thing, be a protector. Back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Okay? Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. That verse we've already looked at. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. The word keep there literally means to guard, to watch, to persevere. It's like a military word. It's a a guard post. So the Garden of Eden was supposed to be the special place on planet Earth. It was kind of prefiguring the tabernacle and the temple that I spoke about last night where God and man could meet face to face. And at this point, they didn't need any sacrificial lambs because there was no sin. But it was still the place where God's like, I'm going to show up, Adam, and we're going to have fellowship. We're going to have worship. It's going to be awesome. But you got to guard this place. you got to protect this place because there's an enemy out there. And Adam wasn't ready. He didn't do his job. He didn't protect it. He failed. When Satan came in, Adam was naked so he didn't have pockets. But if he had proverbial pockets, he just stuck his hands in them just standing there. Letting the snake talk to his wife. Lie to his wife. Tempt his wife. And what he should have done is literally spoken back to the serpent. Or maybe literally physically crushed the serpent. He didn't do it. He was passive. He was a coward. He was a little boy. Right? It's a good thing for a little boy to follow and obey his mom. Right? You see all these wives out here and they got kids, right? And they're like, okay, three-year-old son, it's time to go to bed. The three-year-old son ought to obey his mom. When you're a man, especially in a marriage relationship, you're supposed to be a leader. You're not a tyrant. You're not an abusive leader. But you are a godly, humbly, confident leader. And part of your job is to protect. Now, he didn't do that. He stayed silent. He blew it. He ruined the whole universe for us. Okay? Thanks for that, Adam. But, just a side note, don't get too mad at Adam, because let's just be honest, guys. If it had been me, if it had been you, would we have done any better? Right? Maybe we'd have lasted like one day longer than Adam did. But eventually we'd have done something really stupid and selfish and ruined the universe for everybody else. So, let's just be glad we weren't put in that position. Now, three times in the Bible... There's a phrase used. It sounds like something out of an old cowboy movie, but it's not. It's from a Bible, and it's this, act like men. And I want us to look at this phrase briefly, the times it shows up, because what it literally means is have courage. Stand up in the face of danger. So the first time is 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 9. So that's flip over to the right from Genesis, about 8, 9, 10 books, 1 Samuel chapter 4. And here's the idea. There's a war going on between two nations, the Israelites and the Philistines. And this is actually said by the Philistines, but they're worried they're about to lose the battle. And if they lose the battle, 
that their, their whole nation, themselves, including their wives and their kids, will become slaves of the other nation. Because that's, what, that's the way it worked back then. Whatever nation won, they just enslaved the whole other nation. So look at what they say. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 9. 1 Samuel 4, 9. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Part of what it means to be a man is that you're ready to literally physically fight in the face of danger if that's what it takes. If there ever is a just war, there's a lot of bad wars, but if there's ever a just and right war, there ought to be a lot of Christians that say, I'll volunteer, I'll fight. Christians aren't pacifists. We're not afraid to fight. We just fight in the right way, in the right time, in the right place. Listen, if you get married and you ever hear a noise downstairs, you should never roll over to your wife and say, I'm not feeling great, baby. And you know, the last time we heard a noise downstairs, I went and checked it. So now it's your turn. That would be just as stupid as if your wife has a baby and she's breastfeeding the baby and the baby wakes up in the middle of the night and she rolls over to you and says, hey, I breastfed the baby last night. Now it's your turn to breastfeed the baby. Right? You're going to say, yeah, my body didn't do that. It doesn't work that way. And there's a right way your wife can say, my body is not made to fight and kill. I'm made for that. We are. In worst case scenario, listen, I, I had this kind of thought. You know, let's just imagine, God forbid, tonight in the main rally room, we get some kind of alert that there's an active shooter in the convention center. And we need to get everybody out safe and quickly. You know, and unfortunately in our world, this is not too much of a stretch, is it? And we're like, hey, we got some doors in the back. We can get everybody out. We can't get everybody out instantly. When we got two or three, we got over a thousand people in here. There ought to be something in the soul of every single man hearing this that says, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to go to the back of the room and I'll be like a human shield until we get all the women and children out. And then when I'm like a thousand percent sure that all the women and children are out of danger, then I'll think about my own safety. But before that, I'll be happy to die for any random woman and children I've never met before I will run away and tuck tail. Does that make sense? And listen, that doesn't have anything to do with a Christian. That just has to be doing with a man. I'm ready to take the responsibility, own it, and finish it, even if it kills me trying. That's a man. I'm ready to die if that's what it takes. Flip over a couple more books to the right. 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 2. Because listen, the reality is, we've been so blessed in this country, there's high likelihood most of us will never have to go to war. Most of us will never have to grapple with a burglar in our house. We might, but for most of us, that will never be the case. The word's not always used in that way, though. 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1-3. through 3. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth, meaning die. Be strong and show yourself a man. There it is again. Act like a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in His ways and keeping His statutes, His commandments, His rules, and His testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Now, just a little bit of historical context. David was the greatest king of all ancient Israel. I hesitate to use this example, but I'm going to go there anyway, okay? All right. 
Whether you love or hate or you don't care about Nick Saban, you got to respect him, right? you got to respect him. You don't have to like him. You don't have to love him. you got to respect him. But at some point, if Jesus tarries, Nick Saban is going to die or retire. And some poor sap is going to have to follow him. Now, who wants to be that guy? That's a little bit like what we're looking at here. David was this great, awesome, godly king, and he's about to die. And Solomon was actually a pretty young son. We don't know exactly how old he was, but he was young. And as David's saying, you've got to be a leader. You've got to lead the whole nation. This is like becoming president and the pope all in one day. Because you're going to think for him spiritually. You're also going to think for him politically. You've got to think for him militarily. And you know what he said? Act like a man. Now, most of us probably will never have to go to war. A lot of us guys, almost all of us, at some point will be put into a leadership position you don't feel ready for. You don't feel prepared for. And you need to say to yourself, you need to maybe memorize this first, act like a man. God, by your grace, I want to show myself a man. I want to step up under this leadership position and I want to have courage even when it's hard and it's painful, it's not easy, it's not fun, it's not clear, it's confusing. I'm going to lead anyway. Act like a man. Now, once again, some of you may be saying, uh, Old Testament again, can't we have something more sweet? All right, flip over to the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. This is the actual book where Paul wrote the love chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It's at the very end of the book. And listen, the ancient city of Corinth was like something a little bit like if you could take Manhattan and Las Vegas and put them together. It was like double sin city. People went there to make a lot of money and have a lot of sex. Okay? There was a lot of sin going on in the city of Corinth. And there was a lot of sinful beliefs. And the church there had struggled with a lot of sinful stuff. And Paul was writing this letter to try to tell them, hey, you guys got to stay away from the sinful practices and you've also got to stay away from the sinful beliefs. And look at how he closes this letter. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, skip down to verse 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. It's all military language. Dig your heels in. Get ready for a fight. Don't let anybody back you off your line. Stand firm. Be a man. Listen, guys, if you're a Christian, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but this world is assaulting basic Christian doctrine, basic Christian beliefs. And one of your things as a man is to know the Word of God clear enough that you can stand for it. Not in a mean, arrogant, hateful way, in a humble way, but in a confident way. It's like, I'm willing to verbally fight for the truth. I'm not going to be fierce, but I'm not going to be faint and fickle. I'm going to be firm. I'm going to be steadfast. I'm going to be sure about the truth. I'm going to be clear. I'm going to have courage. Third point, pursue. Back to Genesis chapter 2. You may say, where am I getting this one from? Genesis chapter 2. This is so important. Genesis chapter 2, second to the last verse, verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The norm, the expectation, is that men grow up, 
They leave their mom and their dad. That doesn't mean they don't like their mom and dad, don't love their mom and dad, don't honor their mom and dad, but they quit being dependent on their mom and dad. They become independent and they go get a wife and they start their own family. Again, are there exceptions to singleness? Yes. Jesus was single while He was on earth. Paul, we're almost certain he was single. Maybe his whole life, certainly for a while. But the norm is, part of what it means to mature and grow up is be a man. Guys, so so much of this comes down to dating women. You're supposed to be the pursuer. And I know there's talk going around right now. I've heard it all over the place about, yeah, people don't really date anymore. You know, you just get on social media and kind of find it out. And then you kind of try to find a way to get around him as friend. You know, it's like, again, grow up, man. If there's a girl that you're interested in and you think you're mature enough to go on a date, don't be a Facebook stalker or Instagram or whatever you're on to. Walk up to the girl like a human being, look her in the eyes, right, not up and down, and say to her, hey, I'd like to buy you a cup of coffee. And guys, why is this part of manhood? Because what you're doing in that moment is you're risking rejection. You're taking the bold step to put yourself out there and say, I like you, I hope you like me, but if you're not, you can tell me. And if she says, yeah, thanks, but no thanks, be a man and take it. Don't be a pouty little boy. She hurt my feelings. I'm never going to ask somebody else. You know, there's about three billion other fish in the sea. Grow up. I'm not saying it won't hurt, but part of what it means to be a man is even when I get hurt, I keep moving forward. I don't go die in a pile. I don't go wallow in self-pity. I don't give up. I don't get mad at her. Man, she don't know what she's missing. She probably does know what she's missing. That's why she said no. Right? <laughs> Grow up. Become the kind of person that she'd want to marry. Maybe somebody else. Risk the rest. Be willing to pursue. And again, guys, confidence, but a humble confidence. Not an arrogance. Not a sheepish kind of timidity. <laughs> Just straightforward honesty. Listen, if you're in some kind of dating relationship with a girl right now, and she keeps having to press you to define the relationship, people still use that language, DTR, define the relationship, that's probably not good. Now, she might be crazy and anxious, and it, she'll, like, dude, I just said hate her last night, and she's like, define the relationship. That's her problem. She's got issues. Run, all right? <laughs> but if you've been hanging out with this girl every night for three months talking about what you want to name your kids one day, but you hadn't called her your girlfriend or whatever, and she says, hey, can we define the relationship? That's on you, man. Don't make her do it. You need to be the one that initiates. Be a pursuer. Be an initiator. Now, a couple of application thoughts. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 5 in the New Testament. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 5. You may not even look at this, but... Uh, Guys, the Bible is abundantly clear. Some people wish that it wasn't. But if you say, I believe the Bible is the Word of God, it's inerrant, it's trustworthy, it's my authority, I submit to it. And the Bible is super clear about two things when it comes to manhood. Maybe more, but at least two things. Men are supposed to be the leaders in the home and in the church. Now, we can have some friendly debates about exactly what that looks like in the application. You understand what I mean? But just from a principle level, the Bible is uber clear. There's really no argument or debate. We've been given the burden. Bear the 
heavy burden of leadership responsibility in the home and the church. That's the goal, guys. That's what you're trying to grow up into, Christ-like masculinity, bearing that burden. And part of what you need to know about yourself is where are you the most tempted to wilt from work, to run from a fright, to shirk off responsibility? But also know this. A lot of times when we think about being a leader, we kind of have this mental picture of like I'm sitting on a throne. Like, hey man, that whole David Solomon being a king, I really like that. Can we read that again? I like the idea of sitting on a throne, being a leader, being in charge, having people do stuff for me. Maybe there's like a cute girl there feeding me grapes or something. I can tell people, go do this, go do that. I'm in charge. I'm a leader. And listen, that might be a tiny piece of leadership. But you read the whole biblical account of what good godly leaders look like, and it's a lot more about service. Maybe, maybe if you remember nothing else, remember this. Men are given more strength. And in our sinful tendencies, we like to use that strength to serve ourselves, to live our lives, to take and grab and get what we want, right? Get the gusto. I'm strong enough to get it. The money, the women, the fame, the fortune, whatever. I'm just going to get it for myself. It's selfish. It's abusive. Biblically, we've been given more strength. Why? So that we can serve more. That's what biblical leadership is. I will serve more. I will lay down my life more. And and the clearest picture of this is the Lord Jesus Christ. If any of you are like, I don't really know about some of the stuff this guy is saying about manhood. The greatest man that ever lived was the Lord Jesus Christ. And there will never be a greater one. Fully God, fully man, sinless perfection. Think about the way that he led and that he served as a man. Think about the way that he used his strength. Think about the way that he bore up under the heavy burden of responsibility. He said, I'm going to provide for my people. He was sitting on a throne in heaven, but he said, I'm willing to leave. Like, just like we're supposed to grow up and leave our mother and father to go find a wife, he said, I'm going to leave my father in heaven, this place of safety, this place of blessing. And I'm going to dive into this sinful world, a place of risk, a place of danger, a place of pain and suffering. I'm going to dive in. I'm going to become a humble man. Why? So I can provide for my people. So I can provide for their salvation. So I can protect my people. I can protect them from the wrath of a just judge that they deserve. But I'm going to protect them. How? By taking it. By laying down my life. And I'm going to pursue them. Even when they don't like me, they don't love me, they don't respect me, they're my enemies. They're hating me. I'm going to keep persevering and pursuing. And great Bible teacher, I quoted him last night, John Calvin. He says, when Jesus was on the cross, that literally what he was doing, it was like he was grappling in hand-to-hand combat with Satan for our souls. It cost him his life. He literally fought to the death, but he won and he rose again. So here's the last thought, guys. I think, by God's grace, I've given you a good biblical picture of what it means to be a man. Go for it. But just know, you're going to fail a lot. I'm going to fail. I'm still failing a lot. And when you fail, don't beat yourself up. Rest in the finished work of Christ for you. He was the perfect man. You don't have to be the perfect man. But you should still strive to be the perfect man because you love Him, you respect Him, you honor Him so much, you want to please Him. And so when you have successes, it's not a perfect man, but as a godly man, rejoice in Christ. Give Christ 
the victory. Give Christ the honor. And the whole time, learn from Him. Imitate Him. Rejoice in Him. Be conformed to His image. And you'll be the man God wants you to be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to honor You in everything we do, whether we eat, whether we drink, whether we act like a man. We want to honor You with our manliness. But Lord, we are so aware of our weakness that we are abusive. Sometimes we are selfish. And then sometimes we're just weak and cowardly. We run away. Have mercy on us. Forgive us for our sins. But don't leave us in our sins. We, we so love Your grace that covers our sins. But we also want Your grace to be changing us, sanctifying us, growing us up, making us into the men that You want us to be. Please do this for our joy, for Your glory, and for the benefit of the others that we'll serve. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching. 